Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, congratulations. We all made it to Friday again here on the Three Martini Lunch. We've saved a stool for you, and we have no good martinis for you. But uh, we do have uh, three compelling topics today. Uh, probably the first one's a bad martini, second one's definitely bad, and the third one's definitely crazy. So, uh, Jim, we've got a big, fierce fight in Washington and a lot of pressure from the media to create this independent 1-6 commission, uh, Congress creating something akin to the 9-11 commission, for those who remember that way back in the day, ran from about 2002 to 2004 to investigate how it happened, what we missed along the way, and uh, what conclusions we can draw to prevent it from happening again. Uh, and you take a look in the morning, Joel, today at the uh, at the real 9-11 commission, not necessarily the way it's being romanticized right now upon Capitol Hill. My thing here is, of course, is uh, why does it have to be the independent commission? You're going to have an, an equal number of Republicans and Democrats anyway. I'm not sure whether it matters if they're in office or not. If the Democrats were actually serious about this, they've got committee power in the House and Senate. Uh, they could create a special commission, uh, like when John Boehner created one to look into Benghazi. They didn't need to make this a political show trial, putting all Republicans in the spotlight on this. They could have just done the work if they were serious about uh, learning more about what happened that day. And so that's why you're seeing a pretty significant pushback from Mitch McConnell and other Republicans. Yeah, actually, this is from the uh, a couple of days ago, Greg. But the uh, general sense is that, look, ideally, yeah, you could do this. You could get retired lawmakers of both con- both parties who are really respected, who are not partisan hatchet men, who could just get together, uh, put together an, an organized, you know, uh, detailed timeline of what happened and explain what was going on at the White House, what was going on at the National Guard, what was going on on the ground, was there reasonable intelligence, did uh, Mayor Muriel Bowser of DC turn down additional forces, was there, uh, did the entire mentality of how the police had responded to protests earlier in the year during the Black Lives Matter protests end up affecting the policing decisions that left the US Capitol so exposed? Like these are all good questions and worthy of of, uh, investigating. The question is, do you trust uh, this particular Congress here, do you, do you trust those who be organizing this to actually investigate them fairly, or would it turn into a partisan football? And the the comparison that always gets made is to the 9/11 Commission. I think it's a you know it doesn't seem that long ago to me, Greg, which is probably a sign that I'm getting old. Um, but actually, there was an enormous amount of partisan wrangling around the 9/11 Commission. Some of which we heard about at the time, a whole bunch we didn't uh, hear about at the time. Um, I don't want to go through every last bit of it, but you know, Richard Benveniste was certainly seen as a partisan hatchet man by the Republicans. Uh, you may remember that during the hearings, John Ashcroft basically said, well, at the heart of the problem is that the intelligence community wasn't allowed to communicate to law enforcement, and it's all because of a wall that Jamie Gorlick put together. Oh, by the way, there she is on the commission, um, which really irked the commissioners, including the Republican ones, even though I think Ashcroft had a fairly legitimate point. Um most of the people there were, were former lawmakers who were basically asked to evaluate the effectiveness of the policies that they had voted into place earlier in their careers. So I do raise the question of whether former lawmakers really are that much better uh, or that much more objective or that much more able to do it. And people, I guess at the heart of it, the 9-11 Commission, a whole bunch of them went into it. Max Cleland probably jumps out at this. Eventually he got replaced by Bob Kerry when another job opened up for him. 
So, you know, the, the argument was, was 9-11, was the commission going to conclude that 9-11 was more the fault of the Clinton administration for the policy decisions that they had made on counterterrorism uh, up until January 20th, 2001? Or were they going to say, oh, no, no, this could have been prevented sometime between January 20th, 2001 and 9-11. And it became very clear to the two uh, chairmen there, Lee Hamilton and, uh, and Tom Keene, that you couldn't go, that basically, if, you know, any attempt to do that would completely tear apart the commission and you'd have six, you know, five commissioners pointing fingers at each other. And they basically punted on that issue. They, they tried to lay out the facts as best they could. They did not come to any conclusions of it was this administration's fault or was that administration's fault. And there are a bunch of people who look at it and say, well, they did a lot of information. They gave us probably the most comprehensive assessment of what happened in the lead up to 9-11 and, and that day. But it didn't really... Um, address that question that a lot of Americans wanted answered. And I think it's very worth you know pointing out, some chunks of it remained redacted to this day, and mostly it was the parts that were pointing to Saudi Arabia. And so a lot of people who look at I just kind of feel like the entire, oh, by the way, there's a really good book by the chief of, by a New York Times reporter investigating how things work behind the scenes. There was a lot more infighting the public never got to hear about. A lot of the conclusions were basically these like very tense, delicate, nego delicate negotiations about what the commission's final report was going to say. So if you want to see this as this perfect bipartisan or nonpartisan ideal that was only, you know, focused on the facts, I, I don't think it was quite as clean and neat and nice as the popular perception is. Does this guarantee that a 1-6 commission would turn out the same way? It doesn't guarantee it, but I think it's very, very likely, in part because I think the, the, politi the, the political ramifications of this are much clearer. There are, you know, almost every Democrat in the world would like to say, yeah, well, the, the, the Capitol Hill riot happened because of Donald Trump. It's 100% his fault. That's that. And there are a whole bunch of Republicans who, first of all, would like to believe the nonsense. Oh, it was, it was uh, Antifa in disguise or, you know, and all that stuff. Uh, there are a bunch of Republicans who want to downplay what happened. And then I think there are much more legitimate arguments about whether the amount of police that were on scene was restricted or limited because of previous perceptions about the police, you know, stemming from earlier controversies in 2020. I just don't know if I trust these guys to get to the bottom of it. We'll see how things shake out. It's an open question as to whether you'll get 10 Republicans uh, able to vote for this and able to, to pass it. But I do kind of feel like at the heart of this is this misplaced faith in what a bipartisan commission can do. And Greg, I noticed they never mentioned all the other bipartisan commissions that everybody ignored as soon as their report came out. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. You already go in with the preconceived notions and you're uh, probably going to stick with them. I do remember uh, one particular partisan dust up. Uh, they had gotten some testimony from Richard Clark and what he testified was directly contradictory to what he had given as background information to the media at one point. So the White House revealed that he was the one who had given the background information to the media. And there was this massive explosion in the public hearing. I remember Bob Kerry was furious that uh, that uh, not that Clark had uh, given two different uh pieces of testimony over time, but that uh, that he got outed for saying it. So there was definitely partisanship. You're going to get partisanship in these situations. I would say two other things here, uh, one of which uh, might not make me very popular. Uh, I do think that uh, there are some on the right who don't take the, what happened on January 6th seriously enough. I wouldn't label it as a coup, certainly, uh, but there was a lot of violence and it got pretty close to the halls of Congress. And uh, that is uh, much more serious than some would say. However, those who are saying it's a bigger deal than 9-11 are insane and they should not be taken seriously. Yeah, I saw somebody, it was, it was some Washington talking head who was not generally thought of as an idiot saying that 
the three most traumatic days in American history were, or in the last 60 years, were the Kennedy assassination, 9-11, and um, uh, the January 6th. Now, January 6th was bad, but, um, you know, Sandy Hook, Columbine, uh, you know, like there, there are a bunch of really terrible things that have happened in this country and that, you know, thankfully out of a lot of things that did not go right on January 6th, one of the things that did go right was that it did not end up with a significant death toll. You did have several officers who killed themselves afterwards. There's a controversy of what exactly caused Sicknick's, uh, uh, you know, sudden death, uh, and the protester who was shot by the Capitol police, uh, you know, like, again, it's all bad. But I don't know if you put that amongst the top three darkest days in uh, uh, in U.S. history, at least the last sixty years. But uh, I'm sure there are other people who would uh, dispute that. But yeah, it just you know, there's I, I, you know, the other thing is the perception. This is all being done to fight over the um, that basically this is an effort to, to influence the 2022 elections. Greg, is it just me or is it my sense? Of, like November 22, we'll be dealing with something else, new and different, and people won't necessarily want to be voting over what happened on January 6, 2021. Yeah, that's probably the case. Something will be different by then. And of course, I don't trust Pelosi and, and Chuck Schumer uh, to craft uh, whatever commission was becoming out of this. So the idea that this is just some uh, innocent, bipartisan, above board, objective look at what's going to happen. I don't trust Pelosi and Schumer uh, to craft that at all. Um Anyway, let's talk about uh, our fantastic sponsor today, uh, Porter Road. Uh, but Jim, uh, in addition to uh, the craziness of um, uh, some of the things we just talked about, uh, we've talked about the cicada season that is upon us here in the uh, D.C. metro area. And I think it uh, extends farther than that. Uh, I think folks can probably even hear it a little bit behind you as we record today. They certainly could to, uh, yesterday. I certainly could. Uh, but one of the weird things here that's developed uh, as we endure this uh, incessant high-pitched hum in our trees here for a number of weeks is the media's fascination with eating these things. Uh, USA Today, it's Taco Tuesday with a twist. Virginia chef keeps selling out of incredible brood X cicada dish. People are eating cicadas, MSN says, for the protein benefits. But there are health risks. The Baltimore Sun, the cicadas are here, so of course we had to taste them with Old Bay. And then another uh, outfit in Maryland is uh, doing chocolate-covered cicadas. Look, I know you're trying to get people to eat bugs because you think that uh, cows and bulls and stuff uh, are, are bad for the planet or something. Uh, I'm not eating these things. And first of all, uh, cows and bulls are fine for the planet. And so while those people can go around eating bugs, we can eat wonderfully at Porter Road. And Porter Road is a fantastic uh, outfit. I love their meat. I love their bacon. I love their steaks. Oh my gosh, I'll be talking about their steaks in just a moment. But uh, if you love meat and are looking for a more responsible way to consume it, Porter Road is the answer. It's humanely and sustainably raised, and they have butchers who ensure nothing goes to waste. Porter Road is an online butcher shop that delivers high-quality meat directly to you. Now, let me be clear. Meat! Not cicadas, not bugs. I'm, I'm fairly certain that as, as, as extraordinary as the selection at Porter Road is, I'm fairly certain they don't offer cicadas. Nope. And I just kind of wonder why would anyone eat cicadas in a world where Porter Road exists? Never mind the grocery store, you can get this shipped directly to you. I think it was, you know, Noam Bloom on Twitter who likes to point out every time you see one of these articles about how in order to fight, in order to fight climate change, people need to eat more bugs. And his response is usually, no! You eat bugs. I'm not eating bugs. You don't have to eat bugs. You could eat Porter Road. 
They work with trusted local farmers to ensure animals are raised the right way, humanely on pasture with no added hormones or antibiotics. From there, Porter Road dry ages all of their beef and hand cuts each steak and chop using old world butchery techniques to produce cuts that you just will not find at your local grocery store. So you get the best of both worlds. You get fantastic cuts of meat, and they do it in the most responsible way possible. So uh, that's what you need to know here. And I love Porter Road. Their bacon is excellent. I think I've talked about the steaks before. Uh, I don't know that Mrs. Karumbas has ever talked about how good a steak is, uh, more than the one that she grilled from uh, Porter Road. And she was right. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, The flavor, the tenderness, uh, wonderfully done. I mean, she's uh, great on the grill, too. But uh, she's grilled lots of steaks, and uh, she has never raved as much as she has about Porter Road. And I love the fact that they arrive fresh. Uh, Most uh, meat will arrive frozen. Porter Road, not the case. Always arrives fresh, and you can put it right in the fridge. So right now, Porter Road offering three martini lunch listeners $20 off your first order of $100 or more if you go to porterroad.com slash martini. Go to porterroad.com slash martini for $20 off your first order of $100 or more. That's Porter Road, P-O-R-T-E-R-R-O-A-D.com slash martini. All right, let's move on to our second bad martini here. And I think this is going to be a recurring bad martini. And that is the issue of inflation. New York Post, a key inflation indicator, rose 3.1% in April from a year ago as costs continue to grow in the U.S. economy just as it's mounting a comeback from the pandemic. It's the most since July 1992 that the core personal consumption expenditures index has risen over 12 months. Uh, The so-called core PCE index, which excludes food and energy, uh, rose 0.7% from March, the highest month-over-month rise since October 2001, the Commerce Department uh, reported. So, Jim, um, we're hearing from the media now, of course, that uh, inflation means that uh, the economy's coming back. It's just a a matter of uh, keeping that down a little bit, but it's uh, actually a good sign. Of course, back in July 1992, the last time we saw a jump like this, it meant that the incumbent Republican president was a disaster and had to go. So I'm sure the uh, consistency of the analysis here is right on right on target. Yeah, that's a strong argument there, Greg. Let me just observe, like, look, we had one bad uh, consumer price index report and people can say, oh, okay, look, we're coming out of a pandemic. The data is going to be weird for a bit. It's fine. Now we have the second report. Oh, okay. Well, all of a sudden it doesn't look like an accident when you have two months in a row. It's prison. By the way, you're seeing the same pattern amongst you know, those attempting to cross the border. Uh, and now you see the same thing this time with a uh, the core personal consumption expender index. It's a little bit different from the consumer price index, but they're both measuring the same thing. How much are things, how much more expensive are things getting? And Three percent compared to a year ago. That seems pretty bad, particularly when you look at a one point nine percent. It was higher than the consensus forecast. I won't do my usual routine about how these people are always unexpectedly uh, doing this. If you ever, if you ever need to sneak up on someone, do it on an economist because these things are always, you know, they're always being surprised and shocked and and you know. So. Um, look, we could this turn it around? Could this be we, with each passing month? It becomes less and less that this is an unusual set of circumstances and a temporary effect of transitioning from a pandemic economy to a non-pandemic economy. It looks like inflation is really bad. There's no indication spending lots of you know spending another couple trillion uh, is going to do us much good. That actually we need to slow things down. We need to get people who are currently collecting unemployment insurance back into the workforce. And things will start to even out and calm down a bit. But that's uh, not looking good, Greg. Not looking good. 
No, it's not. And I, I love the vagueness of some experts. I don't see it in this story, but there was another report out uh, a number of days ago, and it said that uh, prices expected to rise for a number of months, but experts say they will eventually level out. Well, thanks, experts. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, you know, that, that it, traditionally it does that, you know, that which cannot continue forever tends to stop. I'm glad you guys are here, experts. What would we do without you? With uh, prices on the rise in a lot of places, you are going to want to take advantage of prices that are really low right now. And in addition to the high quality at MyPillow, that's what you're going to find on their pillows. The uh, MyPillow, as I've said all week, uh, love this. Uh, it's what I've gotten the best sleep on for a number of years now, long before they became a sponsor. Uh, it's just great for my head, for my neck, for my shoulders, and I always get a decent amount of rest. And so you can now refresh the pillows of every room in your house because the premium my pillow is at its lowest price ever. You know, the current offer is that for a limited time, you can get a queen size premium my pillow for just $29.98. And a king size pillow is just $5 more. Now, the premium pillows never go flat and they will give you the best night's sleep every night. They're made in the United States, they have a 60 day money back guarantee and a one-year limited warranty. So go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square, enter the promo code MARTINI, or call 800-874-0104. While you're there, take advantage of the deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets and the new My Slippers. Get your premium MyPillow today for only $29.98, but only with our promo code MARTINI. Call 800-874-0104 or visit MyPillow.com today. All right, Jim, if there's one thing we can count on with Marxists as we head to our crazy martini, it's that often they're not very consistent with what they preach when it comes to their actual habits. We've talked before about how Bernie Sanders, for example, uh, has a number of homes. His wife uh, was the uh, head of the, uh, was it uh, one of the colleges up there in Vermont that eventually went broke. But now we find out in this new uh, book on the 2020 campaign called Battle for the Soul Inside the Democrats' Campaigns to Defeat Trump. It's by Edward Isaac DeVere out of the Atlantic. And he talks about uh, the luxury tastes of one Bernie Sanders, including this. Hotel rooms had to be away from elevators and from ice machines so that quiet was guaranteed. He didn't like getting upgrades and would often switch with an aide if he got the nicer room. Quote, if there's a bomb in there, it's yours tonight, he'd joke. But he liked sweets and he liked bathtubs and he insisted on a king-size bed which had to have a down comforter or another blanket in the closet. He preferred that the extra blanket be dark blue and made of cotton. The temperature in the room had to be kept at 60 even if that required having a staffer sit in the room with an open window in the winter to make sure it cooled enough or calling management in to override the system. There was no bending the rules. Once on a stop in California, annoyed that his aides couldn't get the temperature below 65, he had them call the woman from the front desk up to change the thermostat while he sat on the bed watching. She couldn't get it to work, and nervously humiliated, she apologized. Sanders didn't care. So, Chloe, he said annoyed, you don't want me to sleep tonight? Uh, so, Jim, apparently Bernie Sanders sleeps in a meat locker most of the time, but uh, what do you make of his uh, unique taste here? This is almost like rock and roll stars needing certain colors of M&Ms and just the right uh, number of bottles of flavored water in their fridge. Okay, so, uh, Greg, I'm glad you brought it up because I am going to make a full-fledged uh, uh, enthusiastic endorsement of rock band Van Halen requiring a bowl of M&M candies with all of the brown ones removed 
in all of their concert contracts. And people, for a long time, everybody thought that, oh my God, these guys are so spoiled. What a bunch of, you know, uh, insufferable, demanding SOBs. Clearly they enjoy just watching people, you know. But here's the thing, it was actually really fascinating that there was, it was nothing to do with the M&Ms. It was actually an indicator of whether the concert promoter had actually read the band's complicated contract. It was, I guess it was David Lee Roth explained this in an interview a couple of years ago. This was apparently the first concert that was using what he called 850 par lamp lights. I don't really know what they are, but the gist is that they're really new and big. And it was a very big, complicated production. And they'd figured out that they would show up at a site and the venue was not prepared to set it up the stage, the venue was outdated, they, you know. So what they did was they put this into the contract to see how clearly somebody had read it. And if they went in and they did not see all the brown M&Ms removed from the bowl of M&Ms, they're like, aha, these guys had not, you know, never mind reading the M&M section, they hadn't read the technical specifications that they needed for all the doodads that they were going to have during their concert. So it had nothing to do with the M&Ms, it had everything to do with they were prepared for other stuff. And you know, you know, it is fascinatingly possible that David Lee Roth and Van Halen were actually geniuses who understood that they did this and not spoiled brats. That having been said, I don't think Bernie Sanders is a spoiled genius who is trying to see how closely people are reading their contract uh, or something like that. When you make the meat locker comparison, uh, what did we say about dry aged beef a few moments ago? <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe, maybe you got to preserve him in, in cold temperatures or something like that. Man did have a heart attack. I kid Senator Sanders. I hope you live to be hundred, you know, a few more years. Um, so my guess is uh, that he just likes it that way. Now, all of us who have done business travel know that sometimes you get a terrific hotel and everything turns out great. And sometimes you end up with the bargain one, particularly if your employer is paying for it, and you end up with one that, you know, the, the thermostat doesn't work well, the bed is lumpy, things are just not what you do, and then you realize you never want to stay at that place again. It's going to happen on the road. The idea that Bernie Sanders can run around making these kinds of demands, like, look, I, uh, where's the solidarity with the people, Senator? Boy, all of a sudden, he's a real capitalist who likes his market competition, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, uh, he's the man of the uh, proletariat. He should be staying at the Motel 6. No offense to Motel 6, but uh, something like that. Uh, but, uh, Jim, this crystallizes the problem I have with our political maps today. Because ever since 2000, with the overtime election of Bush v. Gore, Republicans have been red and Democrats have been blue. And Bernie, for some reason, in the dark is demanding a blue blanket. I'm not sure what why, why that's relevant. But Bernie Sanders should be demanding a red blanket. And the problem here is the Democrats are now associated with blue when Republicans are the true blue and the Democrats are the commie sympathizers. This is all backwards. You, you are absolutely correct. But like more than over in the, the UK, when they have their maps, usually the conservative party is associated with blue. And usually the labor party is associated with red. And labor parties all around the world have always been more associated with red. And of our two major parties, the Democrats are the one that seems much closer to that. And I'm fairly, there are a bunch of people who say they remember uh, Reagan's you know, states being colored blue, at least on like one of the networks, I think it was NBC News map, and Mondale getting that one little patch of red on Minnesota uh, back in 1984. So it's very weird how it just solidified in 2020. It's the reverse of what it ought to make. And if there was like, you know, it's a fairly small complaint, but if there are things I could change in this world, Greg, that would be one of them. <laughs> yeah, it's not at the top of the list, but it is, it's just annoying. I feel like it's part of a, a top shift, 50 shifting narrative. Yeah, certainly, certainly when it comes to electoral politics, it's uh, it's pretty high on my list. But uh, Jim, we don't eat bugs. We're not red. And uh, we're headed into a Memorial Day weekend in which uh, 
we will certainly be honoring the sacrifice of those who have given everything for this country and honoring their families. Uh, and we will be remembering uh, who we have to thank for our freedom and the sacrifices that have been made by many generations over the years, and certainly those military families today who are remembering great losses as we head into this weekend. So we observe that, and uh, we will be off on, on Monday, and we'll reconvene on Tuesday. I'll see you then. Well said, Greg. See you Tuesday. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. We're very grateful for your kind reviews and your five-star ratings. Also, get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a good weekend, everyone. Please honor uh, those who have served our country and given the full sacrifice. And uh, we'll be back with you on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Hi, it's Dana Lash, host of The Dana Show. Every day, I'm here to keep you up to speed on the most important stories and info that you need to know in your very busy life. And if you're always on the go and you want to stay connected, just download our daily podcast and take it with you. It's a great way to get up to speed on what you need to know and what legacy media may not be telling you. Visit danaradio.com and click on the podcast link or subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.